Involvement with the criminal justice system is life-changing. It matters. Having a justice system that works is a really important part of a democratic society. I'm Penelope Gibbs, Director of Transform Justice. I'm Rob Allen. I've worked in and around criminal justice all my career. This is the Transform Justice podcast. Throwing light on the criminal justice system. Hearing from people who know. It's about whether the system's fair. And what can be done to make it better. Hello. Today we'll tackle that most difficult of topics. How to ensure justice for both rape victims and those accused of the crime. With me to discuss it are my co-host Rob Allen and two experts on different parts of the system. Professor Betsy Stanko, who's recently led Operation Satiria Bluestone, a programme to improve police investigation, and Kirsty Brimlow KC, a criminal barrister. Rob, what memories do you have of rape trials years ago? I'm old enough to remember some really shocking cases from the 1980s when police interviews with women reporting rape were unsympathetic, even hostile. And there was one famous case where a a judge said that a woman raped while hitchhiking was somehow asking for it. So I'd like to think there have been some improvements since then. And I'm looking forward to hearing from our guests today whether that is the case and what still needs to change. Kirsty, rape trials did used to have this terrible reputation. Do you remember any cases where you felt alleged victims were badly treated in some way in the court? Yes, I do. I mean, I have been in practice for a long time, about three decades now. And certainly in courts, there was much less sensitivity. There still would be exhibits which were put on a table in the line of vision of the witness giving evidence. And they might include, in fact, the clothing such as underwear of the person who is alleging that they have been raped. And there really wasn't much consideration given to whether that might have been triggering to that person and upsetting to see it there. Betsy, you've worked with police forces a lot over the years on the quality of their rape investigations. What do you think is the key failing when the police investigate these cases? I think the key failing is that police don't understand sexual offending. And certainly our, uh, our information, evidence and research has begun to extend that knowledge base considerably. We need to learn about grooming. We need to know about positions of authority. So we learned all about the Catholic Church and other institutional settings where a lot of rape and sexual abuse took place. And yet when you get into court, what happens is that people talk about consent and they certainly don't understand about how indeed sexual offenders often exploit ways of disarming consent by grooming by exploitation or coercive control. You, you mentioned the, the phrase disarming consent. Are you saying that the nature of this offending is often that, that men can say, well, yes, this woman did consent, but that underlying that is coercion, exploitation, force, which isn't or hasn't properly been taken into account by police? What is consent in the context of coercive control? Can she say no without being beaten up? No, probably not. 
we're saying that that's part of the evidence that needs to be put forward in court. It's really up to the jury to decide whether the context was indeed one that um, consent was not the issue, but the perspective enables the jury to look differently about what the offender actually did. And we do have a, a crime now that's called coercive control, but what we found in our research is that police were not using that new crime. The majority of investigations focused on victim credibility and completely lost the offender on the way. And that's a bit unusual when you find that one in four named offenders are repeat sexual offenders. So you would think that a charge rate might be a bit higher than 3%. I think it's gone between sort of one and a half and three, hasn't it, percent of all reports of rape uh, leading to a charge. So Kirsty, I mean, there has been over the last, oh, I don't know, 10 years, a huge fall in the proportion of those reports of rape which do lead to a charge. This has prompted a flurry of government activity, including Betsy's work. This focus on the charge rate, is that the right indicator for whether the the system is working? I think there can be a lot of confusion over the stats. Um, I see the court side and those cases that actually reach court, I think it's around 62% of those rape cases result in conviction. So that's fairly robust in terms of demonstrating that the court is working. It can be difficult evidentially at court because a lot of these cases, in fact, are firstly one word against another because of the nature of the crime. And also often they involve people who know each other and often they involve alcohol. And so that kind of meeting at a party context is often the evidence that a jury then has to consider. And in those cases, quite often you have a defendant who's no previous convictions. And those are evidentially difficult cases to secure to the requisite criminal standard um, for a conviction. Secondly, with charges, it used to be that cases would go quite quickly to the court process and then gathering further evidence would really happen once it was in the court system. What happens now is that the case goes to the Crown Prosecution Service from the police uh, and the police might be recommending charging. And then the Crown Prosecution Service quite often will send it back to the police to say, no, actually, we need more evidence. And this is causing a time delay of several months. And I think that probably affects then people who are trying to pursue their complaint. I mean, imagine if you've gone through the whole process and then there's another additional months lagging before even getting to charge. I'm sure that gets very dispiriting for people. And so we see a huge dropout rate of people not actually pursuing their allegations. I mean, Betsy, from your point of view, how important do you think the charge rate is as an indicator of how well or, or badly the system is working? I think it's an indictment against um, the way in which police were making decisions and indeed Crown Prosecution Service as well. Both organizations have admitted that in this research. It can't be really that 97% aren't against the law. And so what we're suggesting is that if you are raped in different contexts, you have different access to justice. And actually, if you're different kinds of victims with different ages or different vulnerabilities, 
mental health. Oh my goodness, that one is a very, very steep mountain to climb. What was happening is that the police were excluding those cases before even the victim who might have wanted to pursue could do so. And so what our work is showing already is the charge rate has increased in some places very quickly because the police are now making decisions based on what they think is chargeable evidence and putting forward a very different and a wider array of cases that you might not have seen in the past because they were being excluded because they were preempting the jury's system of belief. And there may be doubt, but actually, if you really understand offending, you might be able to describe and collect evidence very differently to demonstrate how the victim's account is actually what did happen as opposed to what the offender is saying. It's interesting as to what evidence you can collect. You do have obviously two parts to a definition of consent, that uh, the person has to have the freedom to consent, first of all. So somebody who is uh, being controlled would not have that freedom. But also the defendant has to reasonably believe that the person is not consenting at the time of the alleged sexual offence. But with a coercive control case, that is where you'd probably be looking at, well, is there additional expert evidence here that could be brought, psychiatric evidence, psychological evidence? But then you would still have potentially a defendant who's saying, well, I thought she was consenting. Yeah, it may not be expert evidence. It may be that there's a pattern in practice that actually it's somebody who has reported multiple times domestic abuse to the police. I'm just giving an example. Not for all. There's no way I'm talking about a a charge rate of 100%, but it's got to be better than 3%. I mean, really. Yeah. I mean, I I agree, Betsy, that the charge rate is absolutely appalling. I mean, it's the worst it's ever been. But at the same time, I know cases where a, a, a caseworker at the CPS has 100 cases and they just cannot cope. And for me, that is that is a problem. I don't think anyone would dispute your research, but who's actually going to advise on these cases, particularly when you've got a 64,000 case backlog before the Crown Court as well? Yeah, so, so I totally agree. But that means that we as a democratic state have decided to parse out justice. Who are we giving it to? Who gets it? And That's not what we're told. We're told that we're allowed to access the rule of law. So not only is it charge rates have to be higher, but if that's a problem in terms of resourcing justice, then that's where we should have the argument, Um, not about the cases or the victim or, or who drank what, but frankly, why we don't have enough judges, courts, and court time to actually deal with people's disputes. And quite frankly, If I'm told as a member of a democratic country that I have a right to justice and I wish to exercise that, then I actually, I ought to be able to do so. Mm. Kirsty, I think it's true that um, the collapse of some cases a few years ago, the Liam Allen case was a particularly notable one, has had an impact on the number of cases coming into court. What went wrong in that case, Kirsty? He was prosecuted for rape and uh, during the trial, there was a disclosure 
of WhatsApp messages from the complainant's phone, which completely undermined her evidence. The trial then collapsed. Now, something went terribly wrong here because that disclosure if it assists the defence, should be disclosed well in advance of the trial. So that then caused a review of what went wrong with disclosure and fundamentally an investigation into why the messages had not been handed up to see their relevance and then handed over to the defence. The evidence does suggest it had a huge knock-on effect in terms of uh, the number of rape cases charged. And we have just return to the position of post-Allen in terms of charging numbers. What kind of things undermined the case? So the sort of evidence that would assist the defence or undermine the prosecution would be evidence where a complainant is perhaps communicating with friends, indicating that they had an enjoyable sexual experience with the person that they then subsequently accuse of rape. The difficulty with disclosure that we have now with digital systems is the police also might not necessarily know that those messages are there if a complainant is communicating with a friend who is not actually part of the investigation. I mean, this is a very controversial area, isn't it, Betsy, the use of digital evidence, particularly from phones. And campaigners have argued that alleged victims shouldn't have to hand over their phones, particularly isn't at an early stage. Why has this caused such unhappiness amongst victims groups? Well, because it's taking a phone away from a victim. And sometimes that phone is, well, it gets lost. It's there for years. Sometimes they do or do not get that phone back. The sense that that feels like a violation as well. And also, are they willing to get that from the offender as well? Um, because they don't have to hand over their phone either. Um, so I think it's really quite important to think about the fact that we are absolutely in need of completely uplifting the entire justice approach to understanding digital information, and and particularly in rape cases, um, because what we found was that the officers weren't even searching properly for the right terms. Um, so they'd use terms like, well, it did a rape occur, so let's see if he uses the word bum or, you know, it's just like teenager stuff, really, frankly. So the sophistication of this is at a very low level, and we need to improve investigators' skills in order to know how to do this correctly so that, one, you disclose what you should disclose, and then you investigate what you should investigate and not just take somebody's world and turn it upside down. I think in terms of technology, things have got better in that the police can actually mirror the databases on on different digital devices. So you can uh, get an exact clone of it so they can then hand back the device much more quickly. And that should be happening more. But the other point on actually searching properly is still a big concern. And in fact, with the, the Liam Allen case, the subsequent inquiry into it, that although there was no evidence that the messages that caused the collapse of the case were deliberately withheld, 
what it did find was that there was a combination of error, lack of challenge between the prosecution and also lack of knowledge. And things have only got more complicated since 2017. And I don't think that we're keeping up with it. Again, it needs proper training, it needs investment, you need to get the specialists in there and you need to get them having a grip of this at a very early stage because delays at an early stage just cause further delays further down the line uh, when the case gets to court. Mm. I mean, Betsy, there's a proportion of cases, perhaps quite a high proportion, where, where rape is reported but the alleged victim doesn't support police action down the line. What do you think the main reasons for that are? Yeah. So can I just challenge the word alleged victim? By all means. Do you say that about a burglary victim or other victims? They have a recorded crime that says they're a victim. So we can use the word victim, but I don't want to use the word alleged victim because that's really insulting. Why would a victim even want to carry on if someone called her an alleged victim um, after she reported? Wasn't there an inquiry into some people who were wrongly accused of sexual offences that specifically recommended that the word victim shouldn't be used unless it was qualified in some way? They, they can recommend whatever they want, but it is not one that I accept. Of course, there will be falsely accused. We know that that's very rare. And if they did a good investigation, they would find that out. One of the reasons victims drop out is because they don't want to endure the attitude of, well, it's up to you to prove what happened. And actually, it's up to the investigator to prove what happened. The victim helps with the investigation, whatever strategy that investigation should follow, including not wanting an investigation to go further than the recording of something. Just as we had a conversation about charge rate, if you know around 50% of victims decide not to proceed, or indeed the police talk victims out of doing it because they're less likely to have a chance of going forward because they're particularly vulnerable, then of course there's a number of cases that don't go forward. But how many burglary victims decide they don't want to proceed? How many robbery victims don't want to have to deal with delays in the courts? Are they blamed for dropping out? Mm. I mean, I don't think it's a question of blame. But we found the language of blame everywhere in the work that we have done. Are you saying, in a sense, it's a fault of the police or is it a fear on the part of some victims that the court process will be very hard going and they don't want to, to do that? It's a, it's a whole variety of factors, including delays as well, because, you know, if you if you want your mental health to get better, sometimes it's best to just leave it. There is a huge amount of evidence about why, shame, humiliation, blame, still being afraid of who the offender is. But the fact that you're able to tell your story and it is a valid crime and it gets recorded, for some portion of victims, that is good enough justice for them. Kirsty, I just uh, want to ask you about the language point that Betsy referred to. Yeah, I approach it from a purely forensic legal position. And if there's an allegation of something, um, then that person is a complainant. And we have complainants of all sorts of 
offences. In terms of a legal position, it's the same as anything else. It's an accusation. Now, that's not to say when you're investigating it, you are treating your uh, complainant with suspicion. Of course, you treat your complainant in a way where you uh, are working with them, you are gathering the evidence, you are looking at all lines of inquiry. But the police also have to look at evidence at points not only towards the suspect, but away from the suspect. The difficulty I have with the language of victim and offender being used at that pre-charge stage is it's just not accurate. So I will carry on saying complainant um, on the basis that if somebody is found not guilty, they're found not guilty. Yeah, but complainant's good. I don't have any problems with complainant. But it is important to explain why I will not be using victim at a pre-charge or a charge stage or a, or a pre-conviction stage. And certainly when I prosecuted cases, I'm not going to be putting my case to the jury on the basis that I don't believe my complainant. I'm putting the evidence there and saying that the jury can be satisfied so that they're sure that this defendant, and it's still a, it's still a defendant, not an offender, because they've not been convicted, because this defendant is guilty. And that is how I would be putting my case. And so I understand what you're saying about the language, but I think it's also really important that people who are making complaints don't feel that the language is such that they are not taken seriously because they are being called complainant, because that is the legal framework which is really necessary. And the issue that, in my view, is, is really important is a number of cases getting to court uh, and what's happening to these large numbers that are dropping out before we reach the court. Yeah, so I, I agree. I stop my work when it hits the charge stage. And so I really am concerned about that 97%. We don't actually even know what an ideal charge rate ought to be. The last two and a half years, and even in Somerset, the charge rate was 3%, and now it's 10. Something happened. I mean, the quality of the cases are still about the same. But what's happened is that they have decided that they are going to forward an evidence an additional 7% of those complaints. And that's that's pretty good. And we don't know what the optimum charge rate should be. Yeah. Moving on, Kirsty, to the actual court process. And I mean, there have been huge efforts to make it less traumatic for, I'll say, complainants. And one of those is about the cross-examination. Can you say what they've done there and whether you think that that is the right way forward? Yeah, so there's been special measures in place for um, quite a long time now for a complainant of a sexual offence. They uh, can give evidence behind screens and that is now automatic. So the uh, defendant cannot see you, you cannot see the defendant, but the jury can see you. You can uh, give your evidence from another room via a television link. Now, a, a new development is something which is referred to as Section 28. And this is where the cross-examination of the complainant is all recorded in advance. And then when it comes for the trial, it's played to the jury. So they don't actually have the complainant in court at all. And it was another policy that came in taking no soundings from barristers who actually prosecute and defend these cases in court. If we had been asked, I can tell you that I would have said, and I know my colleagues would have said, that we have concerns that when 
a complainant is giving evidence through a screen, the impact on the jury is lessened. And that that might therefore lessen the effectiveness of the evidence uh, that is then given to the jury. Now, it's anecdotal and research is being carried out on that by Professor Cheryl Thomas to see if there's anything in that feeling. So I have concerns about overuse of technology, uh, particularly when you've got a complaint that's waiting so long to give their evidence in court. And in fact, they're following the professionals, this is going to be what's best. But sometimes if they're told, do you think you could actually come to court and give your evidence behind a screen if they're spoken to and explain what will happen, you might um, be giving the case um, a little bit more chance of ultimate success within the court setting. And in terms of that success, Kirsty, I think juries convict in about two thirds of rape cases. What do you think could be done to, to get higher conviction rates? Mm, I mean, I, I tend not to approach from the ultimate aim being to get more convictions because obviously the the position is a fair trial and just result because what we don't want to end up with is people who are wrongly convicted spending years in prison and then eventually being being put right by the court of appeal or not at all what could be improved well it's always always a question of investment we don't have enough barristers currently to actually prosecute these cases and so cases are adjourned and the longer they're adjourned, the harder it is for a complainant giving evidence. What I've seen, um, certainly much more recently, has been witnesses who are saying, look, I can't remember. It's four years ago now. And that does impact on their evidence. So no matter how well investigated that case was four years ago, and no matter how well prepared it's been by the prosecution barristers, if you have witnesses who are uncertain of what they're saying because of the time that has passed, uh, then that is going to uh, weaken the prosecution case. And it's also very unfair on defendants. So, Betsy, do you think the kind of improvements in investigation that you've been researching and promoting will, in of themselves, lead to higher conviction rates? I think it's going to be mixed. I think what it will do is bring more cases to trial and that victims will be enabled to access justice and tell their side of what happened um, because they believe that what happened to them was illegal. So if anything, I would think the conviction rates would fall initially because you are taking other cases because that's really what we should be doing as well. We need to test the law. The law needs to also understand modern life. And yes, things are complicated. Sexual crime is really messy. Okay, let's enable some people to have the ability to say what happened to me was criminal. Kirsty, in Scotland, I mean, they really are piloting trials without juries, partly because they feel that insufficient convictions happen when juries are making a decision on guilt and innocence. What do you think about piloting a trial without a jury? I'm very against it. I'm a fan of jury trials. They have robust directions in England and Wales which address any potential 
prejudices, such as the stereotypes of how a rape victim will act. So what Scotland should be doing is looking more at its directions. It should be looking more at how it's having its evidence presented in court. But to go straight to try and hack the uh, knees away from a jury system uh, is, uh, in my view, a completely wrong approach. Betsy, do you have a view about this? I mean, it's sometimes said that juries are biased in some ways against rape complainants and bring attitudes that uh, perhaps lead them to to, to acquit people? Um, I actually am agnostic on that one, interestingly enough, because I think it's important for us to test evidence with citizens, but also make sure that they also understand what they're testing as evidence. Mm. I think this, this week the Labour Party have announced proposals that there should be some legal advocates involved in cases, I think, at the police stage or, or, or later on. I'm not exactly sure when. Have you got a view about whether that's a, a good idea, Betsy? Uh, I think independent legal advice is really useful. Um, the research suggests that doesn't interfere with the investigation, but it does enable victims to understand what their rights are. And so uh, independent legal advice is a good idea, in my opinion. Kirsty? I agree with that. And in fact, uh, when I was chair of the Criminal Bar Association, that is is one proposal that um, I put forward before one of the select committees. I think it should happen. It happens in many other jurisdictions that I've worked in. And it really assists complainants. And it might help stop the dropout rate. I would say as well, you know, I think it is a good idea, but it is totally unprecedented in our justice system. And I just wonder if... They propose legal advocates for rape complainants, whether there wouldn't then be huge demands to have the legal advocates in other crimes as well. What I would say is we, we do need to draw to a close and it's been an amazing discussion. I'd just like to ask you, if you were Lord Chancellor or the Chief Policing Minister in this country, what one thing would you do to achieve better justice in rape cases? Betsy? Yes, as a policing minister, I would fund investigators properly and require them to be accredited with the appropriate knowledge base. Kirsty, what about you? Well, I would join up that funding and fund the lawyers who actually are prosecuting and defending in these cases properly, because there's no point getting your wonderful case to court and then it's going nowhere because there's no one left at the criminal bar to prosecute or to defend. Rob, what about you? Well, it's obviously a, a really complex subject. I've learned a lot. I wonder whether the adversarial approach to dealing with these matters is actually the best way we can do. So I'd like to see an, an inquiry, a commission, looking at whether there might actually be an alternative way of getting to the truth in these kinds of cases. Thanks, Rob, Betsy and Kirsty. And if you'd like to rate this programme, do. Highly we'd like, but however is good. And there's going to be lots more information about Betsy's work and about rape trials in general in our programme notes. Thanks and goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.